0: My eyes first opened to unjustified killings in 2013. I'd walked into the living room to find my sister in tears. She told me a young boy named Trayvon Martin was killed and the murderer was not going to be held accountable. Surely, I thought, Trayvon had done something to antagonize the person. There must have been some circumstances surrounding his death where his aggressor was forced into this dreadful situation. A jury wouldn't let someone free after killing an innocent person. Shortly after, America began seeing more and more body cam footage of police shootings. We started learning names. Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Michael Brown. In 2014, in Seattle, I went to a protest against police brutality. When I showed up, the cops outnumbered protesters five to one, and they were prepared for war. I'll never forget that. There were half a dozen buses of cops in riot gear. It was such an extreme overreaction. And it was scary as hell, and it made no sense whatsoever. I mean, there may have been 30 people there. I think about the women's march in 2016 and the police response to that. There were at least 50,000 people, and the cops were barely noticeable, wearing standard uniforms. What was it about the content of the protest that required such drastically different responses? And then in 2019, at an Independence Day celebration, a police officer killed a man about a hundred yards away from me inside a massive crowd of people. I ended up following that case and did a podcast about it. It's called "The Killing of Stonechild Chief Stick." The research and reporting I did on that event solidified for me the nefariousness of law enforcement during these interactions and how they work to cover up the truth) This podcast is a continuation of the story of Stonechild Chief Stick, though it may not be directly related to him or his case, his story and the hundreds and thousands of stories just like his are driving reforms we're seeing today. So to break it down, the goal here is to examine the system of police accountability as it exists in Washington state. We'll talk about modern policing, crisis training, accountability measures, and the legislation spawned by the 2020 protests. We'll talk to activists, law enforcement, scholars, family members of victims of police violence, reporters, and legislators. We'll discuss accountability measures as they were in the summer of 2020, the legislation enacted to strengthen police accountability, and the gaps in accountability left unaddressed. And though this is not necessarily a feel-good story, there are things to be hopeful about. There's a lot of concern about the state of law enforcement, but we'll also highlight some of the great work being done by some police departments and some individual officers. Let's dig into the gray areas between red and blue, between activism and law enforcement, to figure out what reform is needed and what is preventing it from happening. This is State of Accountability, Chapter 1, Disconnect.
1: Much for joining us this morning. Um, I want to first welcome you to the city of Tacoma on behalf of the 215,000 residents who call this place home. I am so delighted that the governor would choose the East Side Community Center for this bill signing moment this morning but also thanks to all of you for being here. This is an important day for so many people. And I am grateful that I get to stand here with you as the mayor of Tacoma, to be here for the police accountability bill signing and to introduce Governor Jay Inslee for opening remarks.
0: On May 18th, 2021, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee signed into law 12 police accountability measures that will radically change the face of policing in the state of Washington.
1: That is systemic racism. Among his response efforts, he convened a task force on independent investigations of police use of force, which was foundational for much of this legislation that is before us today.
0: By any account, these laws are sweeping and will have a significant impact on the way law enforcement does business moving forward. It's not a coincidence that this bill signing is taking place in Tacoma. The task force the governor is referring to was convened as a result of the death of Tacoma native Manny Ellis, whose final words uttered in police custody were the infamous, I can't breathe.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to present to you our governor, Governor Jay Emsley
2: today with the bills I will be signing, Washington State is creating a comprehensive system of improving accountability and transparency in law enforcement. Isn't it great that as of noon today, we will have the best, most comprehensive, most transparent, most effective police accountability laws in the United States? That's what we're really going to have. Yeah. This is a culmination of at least a year's work by so many people. Elected leaders, including local leaders like the mayor racial justice advocates, families, law enforcement personnel, to address systemic racism that unfortunately continues to bedevil us. For others, this was just one step in a continued effort in this long march of progress. The crises of the past year have raised the consciousness of our state and
0: of our nation. 2020 was rough. COVID lockdowns, A highly contentious presidential election, protests across the country. Seattle in particular was home to some of the more shocking displays of police aggression. In the early days of June, protesters squared off against police nightly. As a Seattle resident, it was very disturbing, but not totally unexpected. But I also wasn't close to where it all went down. Thanks to people like Jessica Frost, though, we could see what was happening in real time. She was one of several residents who were live streaming the conflict from their apartments. State Senator Jamie Peterson also lives in Capitol Hill. He told me what it was like to be in the midst of this conflict.
3: In the beginning, you know, everything was, there was a lot of anguish, but everything was more or less, um, it's kind of like a big woodstock or something, I don't know. Then the police just Started to get into more and more of a bunker mentality, you know, and I realized that there's kind of there's probably some fault on both sides because there were clearly people who were destroying property. The biggest impression that I had from the whole thing is that the the police overreaction to people who had legitimate concerns and were just trying to raise those concerns made the whole situation dramatically worse.
4: This is the
3: the um, irresponsible use of tear
5: gas and pepper spray and, you know. You know, it's probably not
3: fair, but they are and should be held to a higher standard than individual members of public in terms of their behavior and how they use force and eventually, it became sort of a self feeding frenzy. Because the more that they reacted with violence, the more the crowds grew and the more the anger and frustration of the public grew. You know, and in the meantime, not only do you have all the folks who have these very sincerely held uh, concerns about how the police are treating black and other people of color? You also have people who are just completely innocent bystanders who live in the most densely populated neighborhoods for a thousand miles in any direction, whose apartments and houses are getting filled with tear gas. Fundamentally, I think that the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Annie Ellis and so many others, like, finally broke through to the consciousness of a lot of white people who had, you know, maybe paid glancing attention before, but not for any sustained period of time to demand any change.
0: Okay, let's take a step back here. Why were there hundreds of thousands of people squaring off with police this summer? What are we talking about when we say there's a lack of accountability? Well, for starters, one of the biggest gaps in accountability comes when officers take the lives of civilians. Martina Morris is a former University of Washington statistics and sociology professor. She's aggregated data on deaths and police custody in Washington state. She then created several reports that helped her analyze trends and determine other metrics for how many people are killed by police, where they're killed, and how they're killed. But before reporting the data, you have to find it.
5: You know, it was shortly after Ferguson, which I think was true for a lot of people. I started looking around because I felt like I, I can't not work on this anymore. I can't just sit back and say things have to change but not do anything. Of course, the first thing you want to find out is how many people are killed by police each year. And as soon as you ask that question, you realize, oh, we don't have data on that, right? There is no central official source of data on fatal encounters with police, use of deadly force, et cetera. Not at the state level, not at the local level, not at the federal level. And so a number of news institutions like the washington post and the guardian started collecting data on their own and so did brian burkhardt and so he has developed now a team of people that he works with and it has the most comprehensive source of data on deadly encounters with police none of the other data sets that are out there even come close not not even close to this so people often point to the Washington Post data set but the only thing that the Washington Post collects data on are fatal shootings and there are lots more ways that people die in encounters with police than just fatal shootings. Bottom line is there's no official source fatal encounters as far as I'm concerned is the most comprehensive so that's the foundation that I use. I draw the data. I basically scrape the data because they make it available online and then I analyze it I think the things that we were looking for to begin with were really what the trends were and when i first started looking at the data in fatal encounters i was looking at the entire time series from 2000 forward and you could really see well beyond population growth effects an increase a steadily increasing number of people killed by police not only in washington state but in the country as a whole and then as i started to work more locally on the washington state data it became interesting to see the geographic distribution and one of the things that was somewhat surprising was that on a per capita basis we actually see higher rates of fatal encounters with police outside of the big urban areas. I mean, certainly on a numerical level, on a just raw numerical level, because there's so many more people in the urban areas. um, That's where most of the cases are observed. But when you control for population size, the actual rates, so the per capita risk of being killed by police is higher outside of big cities.
0: The epidemic of police violence is a problem that's pervasive across the state, not just urban areas. In the last 20 years, 31 of the 39 counties in Washington have had at least one fatal encounter with police. And of course, the biggest number, 643 civilians were killed by police in Washington state from the year 2000 to the year 2020. And this number grows daily.
5: We have roughly speaking about 50 people killed each year in Washington state by police. The total number of homicides that we have in Washington state is about 250 per year, which means basically that one out of five people who is killed by homicide is killed by police, which is a shocking number. It's just huge. I mean, I I didn't think. It it just didn't occur to me it could be anything even close to that.
0: On the national level, we've all heard names like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Locally, people chanted the names of Manny Ellis and Tommy Lay. As Martina said, there are many, many more victims. Each of these names belonged to families who were left to deal with the fallout from these fatal encounters. To get a sense of what this looks like, here are the voices of family members that have lost loved ones to police violence.
6: We are the Thomas family, and we lost our son Leonard in 2013 in an officer-involved shooting. He was unarmed and holding his
7: son. I'm Castile Hightower, and in 2004, my brother, Herbert Hightower Jr., a man in crisis and experiencing mental anguish, was shot and killed by Seattle police just feet
8: from our home. I am Trishandra Pickup, Stone Child Chief Sticks, um, mother of his children. He was killed by the Pulsebow Police, July 3rd, Officer Craig Keller.
9: My name is Elaine Simons. It is a tragedy that I must share my personal story of the murder of my foster son, Jesse Saray, by Auburn Police Officer, Jeff Nelson. Yosia
4: Faletonga was my cousin. Josiah was only 36 when he was murdered by Officer Jared Keller, former Seattle PD, now Spokane PD. On
10: June 18, 2017, my cousin, Charlena Lyles, was murdered in front of her children in her home. My name
8: is Alexis Dunlap Francois. I'm the mother of my Chance Dunlap Gittens. Chance was a 17-year-old boy. They shoot him five times and one officer shoots him in the back of the head.
9: My name is Sonia Joseph and my son, Giovanni Joseph McDade complied to a traffic stop. Officer Davis parked his patrol car, walked out and shot two rounds into the passenger side windshield at my son, killing him instantly.
11: On March 16th of 2018, our son was, he was having a mental health crisis Help arrived in the form of Deputy Colby Edwards, and within 51 seconds of Deputy Edwards being on site, my son was shot and killed.
8: My name is Joyce Dorsey, and I'm the mother of J. Andre Taylor. He was murdered by Seattle Police Department. My life has never been the same since.
0: Someone I recently spoke to that had lost their family member said, there's a steep learning curve when it comes to murder. Police are often uncooperative with the families, and they attempt to publicly deride the victim. Some families are outspoken about what happens to their loved ones, and honestly, how they do it is beyond me. Listen to Frank Gittins at a press conference announcing a civil suit against the officers that killed his son. Uh,
12: good morning, um, my name is Frank Gittins, I'm Chance Gittins' father. Um, I'm just here today that uh, it's been a long two and a half years. Um, when this first happened, the thing that me and his mother was looking forward to was him going to going to his graduation to see him graduate. Um, and we never got that opportunity. Instead, we had to plan the funeral. And it's not something that, again, we wanted to be a part of. We were pulled into this. And uh, it's been a long two, two, two years plus. Um, we, we know Chance was a good kid. We know he didn't deserve to, to go out like this. Um, we, just Alexis and myself, we were the only ones in the room when those surgeons came in that room, and they told us that uh, Chance was shot multiple times, and we probably could have saved him except for the kill shot to his head, and that's the reason why he died. And that's something that's been going up, going through my head every single day for the last two plus years, and I know it's been going through Alexis' head for the last two and a half years. And it's just, um, and just seeing, you know, pictures of his body and things of that nature. Um, and having to review those things and talk about them and talk about it with other people. and To even do this is something that's just um, mind boggling to me. But I just want to again thank everybody for coming in and I want to thank all the people that supported us and is going to continue to support us and all the people behind me, to the side of me, to the right of me. And we're going to need even more support and more uh, hugs and more everything going forward because we're going to be in this for the long haul and uh, we do want justice. We do want people to be held accountable. And they will be held accountable if it's the last thing
0: that we do. Watching him speak here in front of the cameras and the press about losing his son is horrible. I mean, it's unthinkable to lose your son and then to have to do this.
10: My cousin was five foot two, one hundred pounds, and fourteen weeks pregnant. Two six foot two, two hundred and fifty-pound men stood at her door. They were there less than a minute and before they went in they were laughing because they knew that my cousin often had mental health crises.
7: Not only did SPD take over 120 days to release the public records in their entirety, we also discovered that among the knives Herbert was so vilified for allegedly having were ordinary butter knives. I can't explain what it feels like to think that my brother may have lost his life over a butter knife. My son the police didn't even notify me when they shot him.
8: No one deserves to be shot in the head because they have a screwdriver in their pocket.
11: My son was unarmed, wearing shorts and shirt and socks on a 42-degree night at 930 at night. And we learned about this incident from a Pierce County post on Facebook, on their Facebook page.
9: These officers violated department policies. They escalated the situation and murdered my son without any repercussions for their actions. The investigation was not credible and the evidence was tampered with. There are many multiple missing documents that I've requested never They're just a bunch of lies. Everything
8: they did with
9: Daniel was wrong.
8: They had four four phones with video on them they said that they were all degraded how does that happen after they collected them from the people that took the videos
11: 51 seconds there was no de-escalation there was hiding behind i feared for my life i feared for the community if you had gotten in my squad car
9: they villainized criminalized humanized our loved ones and push this narrative that they fear for their life.
4: I have uncovered and discovered a lot of discrepancies within the stories being told by the other side in hopes to avoid taking responsibility for Yosia's murder.
8: And within seconds, he was shot and killed. And um, there's a claim that he uh, tried to lunge at the officer with uh, with that screwdriver. I would watch
6: helplessly as they killed our son because he did not comply with their orders. He never broke the law that night and he didn't threaten to harm himself, his son, or even the police. Leonard's dying words were please don't hurt my boy. You know,
9: and now the shooting officer is a trainer at the CJTC training facility, which uh, recruits new uh, officers and trains them. So hundreds and hundreds of officers are being trained by uh, this officer who did not de-escalate, but yet he's training the new de-escalation policy, Initiative 940. You know, they just keep killing us and, and getting away with it.
4: A few officers recommended tasers be used, but were ignored. Instead, my cousin was shot in the back of the head by a macho, panicking Officer Keller with five officers on my cousin's back. His hands were planted on the ground, fingers spread in compliance. My cousin even said, I'm not reaching right before Keller took that fatal shot, claiming he feared for his life. This was Keller's second use of deadly force within a year span. Now
8: the officer that shot my son in the head was involved in another case that cost King County $10 million just a few years before. The officer who fired the first shot among getting out of that band was just written in the Seattle Times yesterday for being suspended for one day without pay after he's been promoted to captain and for his racial Facebook post about black teenage boys. They're there, they take a life, one gets promoted, And so many liars
7: involved in the case. It's just nothing happening. Within the public records that my family received, we also learned that Officer Steve Herjack, now elevated to Assistant Chief with the Seattle Police Department, was the officer who pulled the trigger that ultimately ended my brother's life. It seems instead of being held accountable for my brother's death, he was promoted to one of the highest ranks in the department.
10: I knew that no justice was going to be had because the, before the investigation was all the way over, Deputy Prosecutor Mark Larson told me and my family that the officers wouldn't be charged. And I said, well, how is that possible? And you guys haven't even finished investigating. Yet. We still have no real answers. We have had no justice.
12: You know, the way I grew up, it's like, you know, police officers are here to protect and serve. And, you know, it was, it was hard to believe that police would do such a things when I was a kid, and uh, my grandmother would always take a police officer's word over mine, you know, in, in those days, and many, many moons ago. Those days are over. And now, you know, if you see a police officer talking to your son, you're like, what are you doing to my son?
8: I didn't know that that's how the system worked. And to find out that it's this bad. If you go and you dig back into everyone's backstory, you'll find so many similarities. In the before, the after, and then the now. And we're fighting for justice, we're asking for change, and it's just like falling on
9: deaf ears. It's hard to just wrap around my head that, you know, they can murder us, get away with it, and the laws are designed to protect the badge.
0: Until 2019, the standard for charging an officer was one of the strictest in the nation. It required proof that an officer acted with malice. In 2018, the people of Washington passed Initiative 940 with almost 60% of the vote. I-940, among other things, would alter the standard for charging an officer that had killed someone.
5: An initiative campaign here in Washington state that was known as I-940 passed. So that led to a change in Washington state laws around accountability, when police use deadly force so there was both a training component and a requirement for independent investigations and it dropped the language in the washington state law that had prohibited basically any form of accountability because it required prosecution to only be considered in cases where there was evidence of malice The specifics were intended to be sort of worked out over the subsequent year through the organization that we have here in Washington State called the Criminal Justice Training Commission. And they were supposed to turn the law into a set of working requirements that would then go into the code, the Washington State Code. And that was really where the sausage got made.
0: Some data that I have a hard time locating is how many officers are actually held accountable for deaths in custody?
5: Uh, I can tell you that number is zero in Washington State ever since the Malice Clause was inserted, which was, I think, back in 1984. Not a single officer has been held accountable since then. But accountability is always accountable with reference to the standard of the law, and as long as you have the Malice Clause in there, it's okay if you make a mistake and somebody dies. I'm sorry, it was a ballpoint pen. It wasn't a knife oops, you know, that's not illegal. That's not criminal. And it wasn't until 940 changed that standard that we even had an opportunity to consider something other than malice, like gross negligence, right? So until you change the standard of the law, you're not, you're basically, you don't have an opportunity to criminally prosecute.
0: Commander Randy Maynard heads the SIU, or Special Investigations Unit. The SIU is an independent investigation team tasked with investigating officer-involved shootings in Benton County. He has overseen or been involved in roughly 35 of these types of investigations. I asked them how many of these cases resulted in charges being filed against the officer.
13: I don't recall a case that I've been involved in the investigation that has resulted in criminal charges against an officer.
0: You know, you would think that at least one of those. But are, you know, are officers just that good where, you know, they're batting a thousand on all of these incidents?
13: Go back to the RCW definition for murder. In order to convict any person, regardless of their job, you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal court that your actions and your behaviors met the criteria outlined in the statute for whether you're charged with first-degree murder, premeditated first-degree murder, second-degree murder, first-degree manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter. I will tell you, I've met a lot of police officers in my 32 years. I, I have never met an officer that, that has come to work with the intent to commit a crime, let alone take someone else's life criminally. Do we use deadly force in the commission of our job that results in the death of another person? Yes.
0: I think about the, you know, if you expand that a little bit, the state of Washington. I don't know if there's been an officer convicted of murder that I could find anyway. But you know, never, that's pretty astounding.
13: Let's just use my agency for illustration. We generally run right about 95, 96 to 100 commissioned officers. Of those, let's say 50 are uniform patrol staff. Those uniformed patrol staff make roughly 100,000 different contacts over the course of 365 days. When you look at that number compared to the number of people that are actually arrested, the arrested number is a fraction of a, a very small percentage of the total contacts. When force is used, the number drops even more drastically. I want to say less than 60 incidents in a calendar year where force beyond compliant handcuffing is used against another to effect an arrest by the Kennel Police Department. In those instances, in the past 10 years, I believe that we have had six officer-involved shootings in the city of Kennewick. All six of those, the officer has been found legally justified in their actions. We value human life and we value treating people with dignity and respect and fairness and we value competent police officers who make competent decisions. And we work to train our officers so that they don't put themselves in a position of having to use force because of something they did or did not do. The force instances that we have been involved in at the city of Kennewick have involved armed citizens who have actively assaulted, including shooting at our police officers who have responded with deadly force and were legally justified in doing so. I don't expect that 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 illustration applies to every agency and I'll tell you my, my reasoning there. Police officers are human And humans make mistakes. Now, whether an officer's mistake can be charged criminally or not, in my opinion, is solely the decision of a prosecutor.
0: Something important to remember during the course of this conversation is that it's critical to take an honest look at each of these circumstances. There are certainly times when public safety is at risk. And there may be times when an officer genuinely fears for their safety or the safety of society writ large. While it's easy to paint with a broad brush, as with most complicated issues, the devil is in the details. Clearly, law enforcement, for the most part, believes they're doing a decent, thorough job. And that's true in many instances. There are independent investigations that are thorough and by the book. There are shootings that appear justified and within policy. So where is the disconnect between law enforcement who commit these killings and the families struggling to deal with the fallout?
6: I used to think when I heard about cases where an officer had killed someone that the person that was killed had to have done something to deserve this deadly force action. I had such a stupid naive perspective seven years ago when I called the police and asked them to assist me with my son who was drunk and grieving the sudden death of a childhood friend. I did not understand that they would judge him through their racist lens. When a police officer harms someone without facing consequence, there is no justice for the victims of police violence or no incentive to change bad behavior. We as families are forced to put aside our grief to lead the fight that must produce stronger laws that will narrow the scope in which an officer can use deadly force. And just as important, we must have strong accountability when deadly force is used. Reforms are critically needed to bring about true police accountability.
0: In the next chapter of State of Accountability, we'll start at the beginning. What does it take to become a cop in Washington State? What is the training? Where does it come from? And how are police in the state monitored after they leave the academy? Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at stateofaccountability.com. Check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash domcampiece for extra snippets and raw content from my work. To get a primer on how officer-involved shootings can affect a small town, or to learn how law enforcement covers up these crimes, go to stonechildpodcast.com, watch the video, and listen to the whole podcast. Special thanks to Dez Ciara Mataro, whose research has been an invaluable addition to the podcast. Thanks also to everyone who provided their voice for this and other episodes.